How many here love paper maps, old school paper maps, atlases? How many? Raise the hands. All right, how many still use maps, paper maps when you go on a road trip? <laughs> you know, the whatever, 128 page map and you just fold it open and you see where you're going? Well, you remember times when you would uh, maybe be going on a road trip, you'd, hit, you'd have one of those maps and you'd be arguing with, with, with a family member or someone you're going on a trip with. What's the best way to go? How are we going to do this? And you just look at the different highways and the different freeways and, and, and you, pick, you pick an option. And, and sometimes that choice would lead to unexpected adventures. Um, sometimes it would just lead to the long way home and you'd wonder, why did I pick this way? Um, but whether you use paper maps or, or digital maps, there's something satisfying sometimes about charting your own course, about picking for yourself, okay, this is where I'm going to go. Um, but sometimes that can lead to challenges as well. And, and that's what we're seeing in 1 Corinthians, that the church in Corinth just was kind of deciding, this is, this is how we're going to do things, this is the way we're going to go, and it wasn't working out very well for them. They're kind of going the long way home. And, and they're struggling. They're struggling with acting as the body of Christ. And they're missing out on God's intentions for them. Um, they're competing with each other. They're arguing with each other about spiritual gifts. Last week we talked about spiritual gifts in, in chapter 12. And Paul ends chapter 12 with this phrase. And yet I will show you the most excellent way. And it's kind of a preview of chapter 13. And today we're going to look a little closer at the excellent way. At first it might seem kind of strange that Paul puts this chapter on love between chapters on the gifts of the Spirit and the use of gifts in the church. Uh, but Paul wanted to make it clear that gifts are intended to communicate the love of God to the body of Christ. Love is what makes the difference. And the gifts we learned about in chapter 12 are the method by which we share the love of God with each other. Gifts are the tools but love is what's passed on to each other with those spiritual gifts. In other words, it's, about, it's all about love. It's, all, it's about the love of God. It's about godly love. It's not about the gifts. The gifts are a way that we can share the love of God with each other. And we need, we need love going both directions. We need love on, on the part of the one who's displaying the gift, who has the spiritual gift, knowing it's not about us, but about the glory of God. And we need love on the part of those receiving the benefit of the gifts from others, right? Because we need to be full of grace, accepting God working through broken people. And so 1 Corinthians 13 isn't a diversion here by Paul. It's really an intentional connecting of the purpose of the gifts in chapter 12 and the use of the gifts in chapter 14. Love is not only what binds it together, it's the true aim of the gifts. So chapter 13 is not just a standalone as some disembodied testament to love, you know, not just some poem about love, but it's a bridge between chapters 12 and 14. And it's a great reminder of the mission of the church. What's the church all about? Sometimes this chapter is called the wedding text. And in context, you know, these verses actually have much less to do with love in the marriage relationship, though, of course, a lot of parallels can be made. And it has a lot more to do with the function of the members of the church, the body of Christ, with each other, and then out into the world. Caroline Lewis writes, Against all popular opinions, this is not a passage about romantic love, but about a radical communal love that enables individuals to imagine life in a community where unity and difference can coexist. 
And we need to remember that this also is a corrective chapter to the church in Corinth. In other words, Paul is saying, hey, there's something broken in the church. There's something dysfunctional here in the body of Christ. And that's the absence of Christ's love. Think about this. What a tragedy it is that it's possible for the body of Christ to gather together, to worship together, um, to do sacramental things like communion together, to pray together, to hear God's word, and yet still be missing the powerful transformational presence of the love of God himself. And that's exactly what's happening in Corinth. And that's exactly what can happen to any church today. So getting to the heart of God's love is going to require supernatural revelation. Paul writes, I will show you the better way. Not I'm going to teach you or I'm going to give you principles to memorize to make your life better. He says, I'm going to show you. We need to be shown. We need to be revealed the love of God to really understand it. It's not enough just to understand it as a concept if we're really going to take it into our hearts and integrate it into our lives. Paul also writes that this showing, this revelation is a way. It's a way. The Greek word for way means path or road. And we don't necessarily know where it's going. We don't know the ultimate destination. Jesus invites us on this path of love and we don't know what he's going to require of us along the way. And so part of receiving the revelation of the love of God means trust. We need to trust him. So let's get into 1 Corinthians 13. And verses 1 to 3 talk about the necessity of love. Verses 1 to 3. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. <clears throat> So first, love represents God's redemption. The Greek word for love here is agape. You've probably heard that before. It actually wasn't a commonly used word for love at this time. And it's almost the sense that there's a new word that was needed to describe this incredible love of God that was so different from other definitions of love. Agape refers to a powerful, selfless kind of giving that expects nothing in return. Alan Redpath said we get our English word agony from agape. We get our word. There's a connection between agony and love. He writes that it actually means the actual absorption of our being into one great passion. And we can see this reflected in verses as well known as John 3.16. God so agape the world that he sent his son. We have to remember that the church in Corinth here, it's very diverse. There's, there's Gentiles, there's Jews, there's slave and free, there's rich and poor. Um, there was a city treasurer named Erastus, wealthy man, <clears throat> part of this church. There was another man named Gaius, who apparently was, was wealthy enough to support an entire church. Uh, we found that in 1 Corinthians 1.14. But then there's also uh, poor people. They're slaves that are part of the same church. And can you imagine their challenges their disagreements, major economic differences, uh, major family differences, um, major inheritance differences, likely major political differences. And Paul writes about love here in 1 Corinthians 13, not because it's so evident in the Corinthian church, but because it's missing. And, and, he's, and godly love is absolutely necessary to successfully carry on the ministry of Christ in the world. 
David Pryor writes that this is the love which, according to Jesus, has to characterize and control the Christian community if it is in any sense to be recognized as Christian and if he's to be recognized as God's son and the world's savior. Without godly love, the kind of love we see here in 1 Corinthians, we're unrecognizable as followers of Christ. And secondly, love is necessary to make sense of spiritual gifts. Last week we talked in 1 Corinthians 12 about spiritual gifts. And in the absence of love, spiritual gifts can be received with offense. Paul writes earlier in 1 Corinthians 8.1, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And it's difficult to be built up or encouraged if someone's primary aim is to use their gifts for their own purposes or agendas and so forth. And so scripture says there's something foundationally disjointed when spiritual gifts are combined with a sense of selfishness. And the picture here is not an, an encouragement to have good feelings towards others. It's a kingdom call to deny ourselves for the benefit of others. All right, love is, is not just good feelings towards others in the body of Christ. It's a higher calling to deny ourselves. And Paul writes about gongs and clanging cymbals, right, in these verses. If I speak in tongues of men and angels but don't have love, I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Or what was he getting after? <clears throat> well, he could very likely be referring to various Greek cults at the time that would have been present in Corinth, and often gongs and cymbals would have been used in worship or to call on other gods. And these types of cymbals they used didn't provide a beautiful sound. They were monotonous. <clears throat> they were offensive tones. And Paul's drawing this comparison, saying that if we use our spiritual gifts without the governing influence of God's love, then these gifts can become coarse. They can become gruff, uh, lose their ability to create the beautiful sound that God intended. And Paul also shows us that the church is going to be ineffective in the world without the love of God. In other words, if God's love is absent, all of the gifts and the talents and the abilities we have don't mean anything. This is incredible. Paul doesn't say that spiritual gifts are less effective without love or that, yeah, we can do good things, but we miss the mark a bit without love. Paul says that those things are meaningless without love. You and I, I mean, we can be talented, we can be successful, different levels in life, we can have a place of influence, we can be recognized, we can win the argument, we can even be right, but the value of that is zero without God's love. How many husbands do we have here in the audience today? How many husbands? All right. Guys, just think to a time when you tried your hardest to win an argument with your wife. <laughs> and you, you know, you had all of your reasons, you had all of your points, and, and you just pressed that down. <laughs> and, and maybe you were even right, and you won the argument. Let's, say, let's just say, in an imaginary world, you won the argument, okay? And then you leave, right? <clears throat> and and how, do, how do you feel? <laughs> What's it worth? What was winning that argument worth? Paul says, it's worth zero. <laughs> and you feel that. You feel that nothingness when you leave. Yeah, you won the argument. Yeah, you made your points. But it's not worth anything. It doesn't have any eternal value. And L. Morris writes that the Corinthians clearly thought that possessors of certain gifts were extremely important persons. 
But not only are they unimportant, they're actually nothing. We can even make the greatest sacrifice that could be imagined. If I give all I possess to the poor, if I give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but don't have love, I gain nothing. Even great sacrifices can be done selfishly and not truly for others. What a great cost it is to trade in the love of God for anything else, even spiritual gifts. Without God's love, we become unrecognizable. And thirdly, love is in, an indispensable part of God's covenant with us. Deuteronomy 7, 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He's the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. The covenant is love. Love is the covenant that God has with us. 1 John 1, 7 and 8, Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. Love originates with God. It comes from him. Love is also the proof that we've been transformed by him, by the power of God. God's love allows us to comprehend him, to know him. It's not possible to understand God without understanding his love. Love's not just something that God does, it's who he is. And so we come to verses four to seven. The character of love. We just talked about the necessity of love. Now, the character of love. Four to seven. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. You know, love may be one of the most misunderstood and misappropriated words in our lexicon. You know, sometimes the way we talk about love leads us to believe it's primarily an emotion. You know, what do I feel? Or, or sometimes we believe it's some kind of serendipitous accident beyond our control. You know, I fell into love and, and oops, I fell out of love. You know, even the way we describe love has a lot of emotional components and sort of like accidental connotations. Ah, oh, this happened and that happened and it was love and then it wasn't love. Um, you know, a lot of songs, addicted to love, love is all you need. You know, there's this, there's this weird relationship that we have with love and, and how we describe love in our words. And it's amazing that Paul uses verbs to describe love. A loving person does things that represent godly love. Love's not just a static concept to believe in, but it's intended to have practical outworkings in our lives. Um, so first of all, in terms of verbs, love is essentially an action. Peter Barnes and Mark Strauss write that by, Paul, by Paul's definition, it's an action in response to the conviction of one's heart and minds. Love is an action in response to conviction. And the terms he uses are not romantic sentiments, but rather commitments requiring active choices. This kind of love should be the goal of anyone who desires to live out the majestic and holy calling believers have in Christ. According to scripture, our emotions are not a good barometer of true love. Paul's definition of love is really an action in response to conviction, a commitment, an active choice. And you know, when, when, the, when the Greeks translated into English these descriptions of love we read here in 1 Corinthians 13, they can seem like kind of nice, static um, adjectives. 
Love is this, love is that. Um, but in the Greek, Paul uses words that gave a sense of movement and action. Love shows patience. Love acts with kindness. And there's a sense in these verses that the verbs of love are something that come out of an intentional plan, a training regimen of sorts, you know, creating new habits in our lives that better represent the character of Christ. In other words, it's not necessarily accidental. It's not just going to happen by itself. And these aspects of love truly do represent Christ. You know, some say you can substitute the name Jesus instead of love in these passages, and it would ring quite true. Jesus does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects. Jesus always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. So if we're going to truly love God and each other, we need to base our actions out of our convictions. We need to make a commitment. We need to take daily steps, daily actions that live out those convictions. Love that's purely conceptual is ineffective and powerless. The love that inspires and compels us to do great things for God's glory, that's the kind of love that Paul's referring to here in 1 Corinthians 13. There's a man named Bob Goff wrote a book called Love Does. And he kind of gets to the heart of this idea that love is in action. Love compels you to do things. He's part of an organization called Love Does as well. And they work in all over the world, Uganda, Nepal, Iraq, and Afghanistan, among other countries. And he writes a story about his own experience of, of the verb of love and how it changed his life. I just want to read you a condensed version of that. Bob Goff, he says, when I was in high school, I met a guy named Randy. Randy had three things I didn't have, a Triumph motorcycle, a beard, and a girlfriend. It just didn't seem fair. I wanted all three in ascending order. I asked around and found out Randy didn't even go to the high school. He just hung out there. I heard about guys like that. Figured I should keep my distance, so I did. But later I heard that Randy was a Christian and worked with an outfit called Young Life. I don't know much about any of that stuff, but it helped explain the beard and made it okay that he was hanging out at the high school, I guess. Randy never offered me to ride on his motorcycle, but he tried to engage me in discussions about Jesus. I kept him at arm's length, but that didn't seem to chill his interest in finding out who I was or what I was about. I figured maybe he didn't know anyone his age, so eventually we became friends. Well, at the beginning of my junior year, I decided it was time for me to leave high school and make the move to Yosemite. More out of a courtesy than anything, I swung by Randy's house and first thing on a Sunday morning to say goodbye, let him know I was leaving. I gave him the rundown on what I was doing. All the while, Randy stood patiently in the doorway trying his best to suppress a puzzled expression. You're leaving soon, he asked when I finished. Yeah, right now, actually, I said as I straightened my back, barreled my chest. Look, Randy, it's time for me to get out of here. I just came by to thank you for hanging out with me and being a great friend. Oh, hey, I inserted, will you tell your girlfriend goodbye for me too, you know, when you see her next time? Again, no words from Randy. Hey, Bob, Randy said, would you wait here for a second while I check something out? No sweat, Randy. Randy disappeared for a few minutes in the house while I stood awkwardly on the porch. When he came back to the door, he had a tattered backpack hanging over his shoulder, one frayed strap and a sleeping bag under his other arm. All he said was, Bob, I'm with you. Something in his words rang right through me. He didn't lecture me about how I was blowing it and throwing opportunities away by leaving high school. He didn't tell me I was a fool, that my idea would fall off the tracks on the way to the launch pad. He didn't tell me I would surely crater even if I did brief, briefly lift off. He was with me. Despite the kind gesture, it was pretty odd to think he wanted to come along. 
Uh, sure, I guess, I said half-heartedly. Sure? Yeah, Bob, I'm in. If you wouldn't mind, I'll catch a ride with you. So off they go to Yosemite. They camp. They uh, climb rocks. They go hiking. Bob tries to find a job. And he can't find work anywhere. He, he tries over and over. He's rejected every time. He's running out of money. They're there for some time. And, and after a while, it starts to settle in that maybe this was not going to work out. Maybe this wasn't such a good idea. <clears throat> and he says, I only had a few bucks left after buying gas. Randy offered a spring for dinner. And all the way through this time, Randy says, Bob, I'm with you. Whatever you want to do, I'm here for you. I'm here with you. We walked back to the car after eating. I turned to Randy and I said, Randy, you know, you've been great coming with me and everything, but it looks like I'm striking out. I think what I'll do is head back and finish up high school. After a short pause, Randy said again what had been a comfort to me through the trip. Man, whatever you decide, just know that either way, I'm with you, Bob. Randy had been with me, and I could tell that he was with me in spirit as much as in it with his presence. He was committed to me. He believed in me. I wasn't a project. I was his friend. I wondered if maybe all Christians operated this way. I didn't think so because most of them I had met up until that time were kind of wimpy, seemed to have more opinions about what or who they were against than who they were for. Without much more discussion, Randy and I exchanged a silent look and a nod, which meant we were done. Without a word, I hopped in the driver's seat of the car, Randy hopped in the passenger seat, and off we went. Well, we got back into town. We pulled down some familiar streets into Randy's driveway. There was another car in the drive next to Randy's that looked like his girlfriend's. She visited often. We walked up to the front door and he opened it. I walked in behind Randy uninvited, but somehow I still felt welcome. On the floor, I noticed a stack of plates and some wrapping paper, a coffee maker, some glasses. On the couch, there was a microwave. I didn't understand at first. Did Randy just have a birthday? Was it his girlfriend's? Microwave seemed like a weird gift. I knew Randy wasn't moving because there wouldn't be wrapping paper. <clears throat> then from around the corner, the other half of this couple bounded out and threw her arms around Randy. Welcome home, honey. Then the nickel dropped. I felt both sick and choked up in an instant. I realized that these were wedding presents on the floor. Randy and his girlfriend had just gotten married. When I knocked on Randy's door that Sunday morning, Randy didn't just see a high school kid who had disrupted the beginning of his marriage. He saw a kid who was about to jump the tracks. And instead of spending the early days of his marriage with his bride, he spent it with me. What I learned from Randy changed my view permanently about what it meant to have a friendship with Jesus. I learned that faith isn't about knowing all the right stuff or obeying a list of rules. It's something more. It's actually something more costly because it involves being present and making sacrifices. Perhaps that's why Jesus is sometimes called Emmanuel, God with us. I think that's what God had in mind for Jesus, to be present to just be with us. It's also what he had in mind for us when it comes to other people. Because love does. This powerful reminder of that love is a verb. It's more than a concept. It's the power of God that changes people's lives. Love is essentially an action. But we know that love is essentially sacrificial as well. Verses four to five help to define love because they show us what it's not. Have you ever had trouble defining something and kind of came to a better conclusion after eliminating the things that it's not? Well, that's what Paul does here. Love's not jealous or arrogant or rude. 
And remembering Paul's rebuke of the Corinthian church previously regarding some of these things makes sense why they're here again. In chapter 13, those who represent Christ are going to refrain from these opposing forces. And those who represent Christ won't use their gifts to compete or to get noticed or to promote themselves. Gifts aren't something to be used for comparison, but for your calling. And Jesus didn't use his gifts to draw attention to himself, but to faithfully continue the mission God called him to. It's incredible. You know, even Jesus himself said, it's not about me. (laughs) Jesus said, it's not about me. How much more should we say that? In Gethsemane, Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. There's something about love that calls us to bear heavy loads and discomfort. That's patient and willing to suffer. Love is sacrificial. But love is also relational. It doesn't dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love is essentially relational. Love informs your treatment of other people. It honors others. It, It seeks others out. It places a higher value on the relationship than on particular mistakes that have been made in that relationship. You know, it's no surprise that 1 Corinthians 13 has been used at so many weddings. Those getting married often intuitively sense those relational dynamics in 1 Corinthians 13. The practical nature they have in communication and our attitudes with each other and interactions between two people. Love does not dishonor. And honor is such a powerful thing in any successful relationship. John Gottman, in his, in his book, Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work, he writes that the two things are key to making marriage last, fondness and admiration. Two of the most crucial elements in a rewarding and long-lasting romance. Although happily married couples may feel driven to distraction at times by their partner's personality flaws, they still feel that the person they married is worthy of honor and respect. Those who honor each other are more likely to stay married. Those who honor each other are more likely to have a healthy relationship, no matter the type of relationship. Maybe it's your boss at work. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's an organization you volunteer with. Maybe it's a family member. Philippians 4.8 says, fix your thoughts on what's true, honorable, right, pure, and lovely. Fix your thoughts or think about or fill your mind with honorable things. And you know, it's so easy to fill our minds with other things, right? And we can have these internal conversations in our own head. This person that, and they didn't do this, and it can go downhill so fast. There's an intentionality about saying, no, I'm going to fix, I'm going to order my mind around honorable things. I'm not going to keep a record of the wrongs, and we know we all make mistakes, but I'm going to train myself, I'm going to discipline myself to keep a record of the good things. Keep a record of the good things. This applies to marriage, but to any relationship we have, especially as Paul points out, within the life of the church. And Brian Peterson writes that because of our disordered assumptions about what love actually is, we often act as though the mission of the church is to gather like-minded and likable people together. 
We think that in such a community, it's going to be easy for us to love or more honestly to feel the love. But true love is not measured by how good it makes us feel. And in the context of 1 Corinthians, it would be better to say that the measure of love is its capacity for tension and disagreement without division. Love of your brothers and sisters in Christ doesn't mean that that tension or disagreement will go away. It means that we'll, we're going to be able to disagree with each other and still remain the body of Christ without division. That we all remain under the authority of Jesus. Love's relational and respects the other human being. So that's where the honor comes in. That means there's a recognition of another's differences. We don't ignore that. You know, we don't pretend that we're all the same. We don't pretend that we all see things the same way. That would not be respectful. So there's a recognition of differences. There's a recognition of different views and backgrounds, economic circumstances, ethnicity, political views, good habits, bad habits. We recognize those as well. Endearing aspects, annoying tendencies, all those things we got to be honest about. And those things aren't ignored, and they're not all agreed upon, but neither are they points for an ultimate rift in relationship. There's tension and disagreement without division. Love is essentially relational. Okay, so the last couple of verses in this chapter, 8 to 13, love, it talks about the permanence of love. The permanence of love, verses 8 to 13. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part will uh, disappear. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only uh, a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. So first, love doesn't have an expiration date. Other translations read, love never ends. Love doesn't have a beginning either, actually. It reminds me of the description of God, that he's the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning of the end. So naturally, the thing that is essentially God, that God's love, this love's never going to end either. Love didn't begin with us and it doesn't end with us. It didn't originate with us and it's not upheld by us. It comes from God. And God determines what's going to last. And Paul points to the things the Corinthians valued the most. And in, in Corinthians, we see that they, they value tongue, you know, particular gifts of the Spirit. They value higher than almost anything else. Tongue, speaking in tongues, prophecy, and knowledge. And Paul writes that these things are going to expire. They're temporary. They point to eternity, but the gifts themselves are not eternity. They point us to the hope of what's coming. David Pryor writes that every gift is valuable for our growth into maturity, but the heartbeat of our relationship with God now is that he knows us. That's what we're after, knowing God, being known by him. 1 Corinthians 8.3, whoever loves God is known by God. God knows everything about you and me. And our response to God, loving him, brings us to a place of peace and acceptance about ourselves and the knowledge that someone truly knows us and rather than rejecting us, we're received, we're known, we're loved. And because God's truly known and loved us, we've got the ability to go and to love others as well. Love doesn't have an expiration date. Love points to eternity, 
Secondly, spiritual gifts represent the tension that, that we live in a temporary world. And the gifts give us a, a small taste of what it could be like to live together in the presence of God in eternity. Serving one another, sharing fellowship with each other. But right now it's messy, right? It's imperfect. And, and we feel that tension. The believers in 1 Corinthians felt that tension as well. They were prideful about their gifts. They were using communion as a way to, to accentuate the rich and the poor. And it was kind of childlike. Like. It was, but it was still the work of God through imperfect people. And that's like us today as well. The gifts we see in the church are given and received through imperfect people. Verse 12, now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. You know, Corinth was famous for making mirrors. And, and back then they created mirrors by polishing bronze. They didn't have glass mirrors like we do today. And so imagine trying to see your reflection in polished bronze. It would be a very imperfect image, right? It would be unclear. It would not be perfect. But the amazing thing is that Paul doesn't say, okay, just, just call it off, just stop. You're all, we're all doing it wrong. It's not worth it. Let's just wait till we get to heaven. No, Paul says, we've been commissioned to play a role here as the body of Christ in the world. And through the grace of Christ, through the power of the Spirit, each one of us have received gifts with which we can bless each other. We can encourage each other with. It's not perfect, but it is worth it. And the way we make spiritual gifts mean something is through the love of God. Spiritual gifts are given to the body of Christ for the purpose of our witness in the world. There's going to come a time when the church will not be witnessing in the world because the old world is going to be gone. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Verse 10, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. In other words, spiritual gifts are temporary. Because Paul writes, there are three things that are going to be permanent. And what are those three things? Faith, hope, and love. Those three terms you can find throughout Scripture. Faith, hope, and love. It's a theme that you see over and over again. First, First Thessalonians 1 and Colossians 1 and Hebrews 10 and, and 1 Peter 1. You can go there. You can find um, these three words coming up over and over again. And even though these gifts are given to us as broken, imperfect people, they point us to a future when we're going to know fully, when we're going to see God fully. Verse 12 says, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully as I am fully known. You know, this could be a reference to Numbers 12.8, where God's speaking to Moses and God and, 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 and Moses says, or God says to Moses, I speak to him face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the Lord as he is. Isn't that amazing? And that's our hope. That's our future. Love points to eternity, but we can have a little bit of that eternity right now through the love of God operating in the body of Christ. In verse 13, the three things that remain are faith, hope, and love. So there's this Trinitarian focus here, this three in one, faith, hope, and love. And Paul reminds us that love is the greatest, most excellent way. 